What do you call a pig that does karate? A pork chop. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability, episode 72. I'm your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. Wow, I cannot believe that we're at episode 72. That's a lot of episodes. Hats off to you if you've listened to all of them at this point. I can't believe how quickly time has gone by. To prove my point, it just dawned on me that my son, who's 11 months old, is going to turn one year old on April 16th. A whole year, an entire year has gone by since I've given birth to him. And since the pandemic hit, because the pandemic hit, and like two weeks later, I gave birth to him. So it's just, wow, it's just so crazy. You know what else is coming up really fast is Easter. I haven't even started thinking about that. I do currently have a basket for my older kid, my toddler, but um, I got nothing for my for my baby. I'm going to have to go to Goodwill and try to get another basket or something and decorate it with ribbon. I got to get my act together soon. <laughs> that way I can tell you about it next week. I have been super duper busy this past week. I have a bad habit of scrolling on Facebook Marketplace and then I find things that I really don't need but I totally want them and convince myself it's okay because they're all secondhand. So that's my ecological duty to to get secondhand items to improve my lifestyle. My most recent purchase was a cat patio. This is basically a gigantic animal hutch. So if you've seen a rabbit hutch or a chicken coop. It's kind of like that, but specifically designed for cats. I have two cats and they are indoor cats and we have coyotes in our area, so they remain indoor cats. But what I can do is open up the window in my living room and line up the cat patio to the opening, the little window opening on that, and our cats can go from our house into the enclosed cat patio and enjoy some fresh air and sunshine and I don't have to worry about any harm coming their way. As I was scrolling on Facebook, the cat patio popped up and I thought, yeah, I'll throw in my bit. I'll throw in my two cents on this. And I sent, hey, is this available? And they said, yes. And then it escalated from there and I went and picked up a cat patio. I thought that I was saving the world, but it turns out they ordered it from Amazon and somehow they were shipped two of these, but only charged for one. So they ended up selling it to me for discount. So here I am thinking I'm saving the world, but instead I'm just getting a big discount on yet another brand new item. But I tried. A for effort. By then I'd already put in a lot of time and effort coordinating this and drove 45 minutes to go pick it up. I already had it loaded up in the back of the pickup truck at that point. I wasn't exactly going to say, nope, never mind, it's brand new. So I ended up keeping it, but I really did try. I really did. The other thing that I did this past weekend, it was a freakishly warm weekend, like in the 70s, freakishly warm. I was, I think it got even warmer than that. I was in a tank top and shorts and got sunburned, (laughs) but I dug up a garden area and planted some seeds. So I'm very excited about that. Now I have to eagerly await the countdown of 10 to 20 some days for germination to see if I've got a green thumb this year or not. See if I have little sprouts coming up. Hey, let's check in with Sustainer Nation and see what they've been up to lately. This past week, I asked everyone to name the oldest item in their house. What is the item that they have held on to the longest? And we got some really cool replies. 
Tori says that the oldest item she has in her house would be a set of champagne flutes from her great-grandmother that predates World War II. The item they've held on to the longest would be her bureau, which was given to her by her grandmother when she was only 17. Lorraine says that she has a French antique sideboard that she rescued from a house sale, and it's at least 80 years old, and an antique oak French bed that's at least 99 years old. Wow, I bet those furniture pieces have some very interesting memories. (laughs) David says his mother still has the crib that his grandfather slept in as a baby. And several years ago, she found someone who made Santa Clauses out of old quilts. Now he has a Santa Claus made from each of his grandmother's quilts. Karen says she still has her baby blanket and that it's been with her for 20 years so far and it is so soft and has no holes. (laughs) Lorax says she has a children's wooden rocker. It was hers when she was little and she's now 48, a wooden toddler step stool from when her son was a toddler and that he will be 30 soon. And those are her oldest treasures. So if you have not done so yet, take the time to go around your house and see what is the oldest item in the house that you have. What is your oldest piece of treasure? And the reason that I asked this specific question to Sustainer Nation was because nowadays we have a tendency to think, oh, this is so old and it's got a negative connotation to it. Therefore, we feel like we must throw it away or replace it with something new and shiny. But I want everyone to reflect on what are the old items that they have and what makes them so valuable. Why are you keeping such old items? Why are they so fantastic? What is the crossover from when something is old and gross to when it's old and fascinating? And why is that crossover there? Why do we have that mindset and how do we fix it to where we treasure every single item that we have, no matter what the age on it is? And if it's old, not to throw it away, but to keep it and wait for it to become an antique and something that now becomes a prized possession, a family heirloom. As promised in the title of this episode, we're going to transition over to composting. I have talked a lot about composting. Correction, I have talked about the desire to compost a lot. And I have been searching for quite some time for someone to come onto the podcast and explain the basics of composting. David Guyon was brave enough to accept my request and join the show to share his knowledge about composting. Please listen in on my interview with David Guyon. If you're a member of the Starting Sustainability Facebook group, then you already know my next guest. He posts sustainability-related articles in the group every day, and he is the founder of Sustainability Scout, David Guyon. Welcome, David. Tell us about yourself. I first became interested in environmental issues in the run-up to Earth Day in 1970, so that kind of dates me. I was in college. I had a double major in music and history. And that particular term, I had signed up for more classes than I could handle. So I didn't attend the teach-in. But I certainly read a lot of stuff about it. I had a lot of conversations with friends. And I got really enthusiastic about protecting the environment. Well, I continued to pursue music, and I eventually became a music librarian at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and I served for three years on its sustainability committee. 
serving on the committee really opened my eyes because I got regular reports from uh, university maintenance staff about what they were doing. Um, a couple of them had just gotten LEED certification and things like that. And it dawned on me that a lot of the things that the university was doing, individual households could do some of the same things. So I started a blog that I called Sustainability Scout. Well, initially I saw you had posted on the Starting Sustainability group an article about composting. Anybody who's a part of Sustainer Nation listening to the last four or five episodes has learned that I've been trying to compost and I've been running into all sorts of dead ends, mostly because I really don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And that's why I initially asked you to come on and be a guest, because I'm hoping that you can help give us at least some basic beginner starter knowledge on how to do a compost at home. Well, I I hope so, too. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's start with what are the different types of composting methods? I can describe three different things. One would be a standard compost pile, or you can get a tumbler or a worm composter. And the the standard compost pile, I'll start with there because it's probably the most complicated to describe. You can just put a pile on the ground, or you can build or buy some kind of a bin or a frame. Or you can just dig a hole and bury stuff in the ground. And one uh, variation of burying it is called trench composting. Now, if you're using a pile or a frame, you have two basic choices. One is called cold composting. You just pile stuff up and wait for it to become compost. I mean, simple to describe. It takes takes a long time to, to work it, but it's it doesn't take much effort. So would that be like letting nature take its course? Like if you just throw a banana peel out in the woods, eventually it's just going to turn back into dirt. Yeah. You rake leaves in the fall, you just pile them up someplace and eventually they'll turn into dirt. But it, it takes a while. So the other method is called a hot composting and it takes more work, but you'll have finished compost in maybe three months or so. That's the one that I suppose you've heard of green material and brown material. Yes. So the green material is stuff like food scraps and grass clippings, and it has a lot of nitrogen. Brown material is stuff like dry leaves, wood chips, and paper, and it has a lot of carbon. Now, most of the instructions I've found say to start with a layer of of twigs or straw a couple of inches deep, and that will help with drainage. Then you add some green material on top of that and alternate layers of brown and green materials, and you water each layer. And then after a while, you turn the pile with a pitchfork every week or so. Now, that's what the experts say. Sounds like too much work for me. For one thing, after you've turned the pile, everything's mixed together, and you're probably going to want to add stuff to the pile. The important part of of turning the compost is it gives everything a chance to be in the middle of the pile, which gets hot enough to kill weed seeds. And the heat also makes the process work faster. And you keep the pile hot by regularly turning it. Now, you need to have 
your pile or your your bin on a place that gets good drainage, but also that gets rained on. So it needs water, it needs to, to be wet, it needs to stay moist, but it shouldn't ever get you know, soggy or sit in a puddle or anything like that. Yeah, because I would guess as the stuff breaks down, you're going to get like a sludge. So you're going to need the drainage. So putting it on the cement pad of my back patio is a bad location. That is a bad location for a pile, yes. Because (laughs) for one thing, you'll probably have a lot of stuff draining off into the rest of the yard where you don't want it. My compost pile is between my shed and my neighbor's fence. And there are some tall trees around there, so it gets it gets shade. It doesn't get uh, much direct sunshine. And direct sunshine is not a bad thing, but you don't want to have it out in the sun so much that it, it dries out. It's best to water it with, uh, you know, with the rain uh, in, instead of running a hose on it all the time. Whether you use hot composting or cold composting, uh, whether you just pile stuff up on the ground or put it in some kind of a frame. It's really best to keep three compost piles. So you've got one that you add new material to, and then when you've got plenty of material in it, you've got one that you leave alone. I mean, you keep turning it, but you don't add anything more to it. So the bacteria and the worms and the insects finish their work and you don't give them anything extra. And then the third one would be finished compost. So you'd keep, you'd, you'd take compost from the finished pile, leave one of them alone, and you're adding new stuff to the other one. Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense now. <laughs> because one of my questions is, is like, how does it eventually turn into beautiful compost if you're constantly adding stuff to the pile? So you're saying the trick is to have multiple piles. The trick is not to keep adding stuff to the same pile. Okay. (laughs) Now, there's something else I've come across that's called trench composting. And um, I'm not a good enough gardener to try it. But you consider your garden in three sets of rows. And I'm assuming that that will be a a vegetable garden and rather than a flower garden. But one row has whatever you're growing in it. One row is the path. And the other row, you dig a trench in it and fill it with compostables and and cover it with dirt. Now, I suppose that means that you look at the place where you haven't dug yet and and, and dig a hole and put more stuff in it rather than having a trench that you're going to, someone's going to trip over. But this year's planting row becomes next year's paths. And this year's trenches become next year's planting rows. And then you plant year's crop in this year's trenches. So once again, you keep moving stuff around. Got it. So you're constant. So where you're planting your seeds and your plants is where the freshest, most nutrient dense compost is readily available. So you have a beautiful garden. Oh, okay. You don't want to plant stuff over, you know, all of the stuff that you buried that's rotting. Right. You want to wait till it's finalized. You want to give it a chance to, you know, to turn into good compost. And you now that reminds me, when I was, I, I was describing that uh, compost bin I had, 
one of my neighbors was was over in my backyard and asked, you know, what's what's that green thing? I, I said it's a compost pile, and I had my pitchfork and I was ready to go turn it. And he looked; it was pretty close to finished. And he says, "That looks like dirt." Yep. Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> that's, that's the goal. It's better. It, it it might be more pleasant to think of it as dirt and worm poop, but it amounts to the same thing. <laughs> With cold composting, you could do that year-round. But with hot composting, are you able to do that year-round? Because for me, it was a high of 9 degrees today. uh, Where where do you live? I live in Indiana. You can put stuff on a compost pile in in the winter, but it won't do anything. It's probably not very pleasant to to go out and try to turn it when the air temperature is 9 degrees and the wind chill factor is 10 degrees below that or more more yeah but the, the hot composting you, you know pretty much has to be in the spring or the summer okay i could more easily get away with it down here in north carolina i lived in the chicago area and the average high temperature in january was 29 degrees fahrenheit yeah, this is part of the polar vortex, why it's so stinking cold this week. But it's normally in like the high 20s, 30s is a, a normal January, February temperature. I don't think a hot compost pile would, would work very quickly in those conditions, but certainly better than uh, the polar vortex. Now, if you don't have the right kind of ground for either uh, trench composting or a or compost piles, uh, or you don't have much ground at all, then you can get a, a tumbler. So that's like a, a, syllable, a cylinder with a crank on it. My dad had one for a while. And you put stuff in it so that it's not much more than half full. But every once in a while, you turn the crank some. And uh, that seems like an awful lot less effort than going at it with a pitchfork. So this tumbler, does it look like when people buy tickets to a raffle and they put it in this basket that they crank around and around? Is it that? Is that what it looks like? But obviously for compost. <laughs> it would be solid. I think the ones that I've seen for the for the raffles have some kind of mesh so you can see the tickets in it. But yeah, that's that's probably that's that's probably as good an illustration as as I could think of. Okay, so it's kind of like a raffle crank, just larger and solid and holds all of the food scraps and stuff. It'll get nice and hot if you leave it out in the sun. Uh, and, of course, you know, being solid, I don't, I've, I've never used one, and Dad got his after I'd gone off to graduate school, so I didn't see very much of it. I don't know if you can lit, leave a lid open and let rain into it or not, but it works pretty quickly. Another thing that you can get, and this is one you could put on your patio if you want. It's a worm composter, or to use a fancier word, a vermicomposter. You don't put that directly on the ground. You can even put it indoors if you want to. So it, it's, a, it's a special kind of a thing, and you put stuff in it, and you have to get a, a special kind of, uh, of, of earthworm at a, at a garden center but the, uh, the worms will enjoy it. And then after a while, you've got compost. 
I've never seen one. I've seen a picture of one, so I don't know how you separate the the finished compost and and keep the worms in the composter. But there's there, there's got to be a way. There's a member of the group, Amanda, and she shared that she got one for Christmas, a vermicomposter, and she got red crawlers, I believe was the type of worm, but she just got it Christmas. So I don't know if she's got compost yet or not, but we'll have to reach out to her and get some answers on how you work the worm compost. I've seen pictures of of them and I've read descriptions, but I can't tell you much more than I already have. Now, another gadget that I've heard of, it's called a countertop composter. And it doesn't really make compost, but you can chop kitchen scraps into very small pieces and put it in the machine, and the machine will dehydrate it in a few hours. Then you can take that outside, bury it in the yard or something to finish the composting. Oh, okay. Because I've seen kitchen compost, but to me, they just like little... They look like little buckets that you'd put your scraps in to just basically collect it and then you run it out to the compost pile. So I didn't understand the purpose of it. That's that's something different. Oh, okay. I haven't said anything about compost piles or compost pails yet, but I I think you've got questions coming up about it. Countertop composter, I think you plug it into the wall and it it dehydrates everything and, and then you can take it outside to finish the composting process. With my kitchen compost, is it a good time to talk about that now? Or I, I guess as long as we're on the subject, I might as well. Go ahead and talk about the kitchen compost. Okay. The, the compost pail. I, I mean, that's for collecting food scraps. And that's very important because it keeps them out, out of the landfill. So it's, it's much better to compost food scraps And I guess when we get around to talking about what you can and can't compost, I'll have some more things uh, to say about it. Living alone, I've found that if I keep the lid closed, it tends to grow a lot of mold, which is pretty disgusting. But one thing uh, that, that, that I can do living alone, I can leave stuff out on the counter and let it dry before I put it in the pail. (laughs) My ex-wife never would have let me do that. Of course, she probably never would have let a, a composting pail in the house in the first place. I've found that if I eat an apple or something like that, um, that doesn't dry out very fast and it gets moldy on the counter. So I just toss it out in the backyard and some lucky critter can eat it and it stays out of the landfill and doesn't grow mold. Okay. <laughs> I guess I didn't realize that the, so the counter compost dries it out. I wonder if you could save your food scraps. Like if I cook dinner tonight, save the food scraps. And then when I cook dinner tomorrow night, while I put the roast or the pizza or the fish, whatever in the oven, I could also have a separate tray of my food scraps and put those into the oven and kind of dry them out that way. Well, that never occurred to me, but I don't see why not. The only thing is, I think on the um, switch to sustainability, uh, there's someone that posts a lot about dehydrating. Yeah, that's Elizabeth Coates. She's the administrator of that group. Right. And I've tried to 
uh, dehydrate celery a couple of times, and I'm not about to go out and buy one of those machines. You dehydrate, you know, stuff at the lowest temperature you can get on your on your oven. The instructions I found online said 150 degrees, and my oven won't heat to anything less than 170. And Elizabeth said, if you don't burn it, you've done it right. Oh, okay. But I think that if you put uh, scraps in at a temperature that you uh, you know do a pizza or even a roast, you probably go way beyond uh, dehydrating them. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, if you're composting it, it doesn't matter if you burn it. Well, why are you dehydrating it if you add it to a compost pile and then you have to add water to the compost pile? Well, I'm letting stuff dry out in the house so my kitchen compost pail doesn't fill up with mold. Oh, okay. That, that's that's the only reason. Um, if you have a big enough family that you'd be taking it out uh, regularly, it wouldn't have a chance to mold. Now, for where you live, maybe I can suggest something that's a real throwback because before about 1960, everyone had to separate their garbage from their trash. And so my mother always used to wrap the garbage in newspapers and take it out and put it in the garbage can. Well, that was my job. And man, did that garbage can stink. But if you subscribe to a newspaper, you could probably accumulate kitchen scraps, wrap them in newspaper and take them out and put them in the yard. They'll freeze so they won't stink. And then, you know, I, I say newspaper because it's compostable. So then you can bury it or toss it on the pile or put it in your tumbler or you know, whatever you're going to do in, in the springtime, and then it'll start to work. Okay, okay. Yeah, I guess so. I was thinking where I live, I've, I'm in a regular neighborhood, so I have a very tiny yard. So for me to have kitchen scraps dehydrated, I would literally just walk out the door and right there would be my compost pile within 10 feet of my yard because my yard's not that big. So I could just go right out and toss it. But I like the idea about the newspaper. I do not subscribe to a newspaper, but I get so much junk mail that now I have a purpose for all my junk mail. Although I'm not sure very much of the junk mail is big enough for wrapping garbage. but uh, I can cut it. <laughs> I guess cut up the food scraps. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just thinking if you take it outside and let it freeze, it won't stink. And you can do something with it when it thaws in the spring. Yeah, that was one of my questions to ask you is to address the smells of compost. For one thing, don't put meat or, or dairy products in it. I was just looking up tonight whether you could put that kind of stuff in a tumbler. Because the main reason for not putting it in the compost pile is that you don't want carnivores rooting through it. Uh, but they say not to put it in a tumbler either, mostly because it'll start to stink to high heaven. Oh, okay. So that's the trick. If you've got property where you can bury stuff deep enough, then you can put your bones there. I've got a big yard, but every place that where I could dig a hole and bury something, there's so many tree roots there that I can't bury it very deep. Oh, okay. That makes sense. But otherwise... 
if you've got a, a compost heap with basically just plant matter and it stinks, you have too much green stuff in it. You need to mix it with more brown stuff. Oh, okay. So, you know, more leaves, more little twigs, more waste paper. If you use paper towels or paper napkins for anything, and a lot of people have sworn off completely, but if you use them for anything, put them in the compost. Okay. Yeah, that works. Because, um, all right. So in regards to the napkins and the paper towels, you're right. Most people have probably switched off of those. If they're listening to this podcast, they've probably switched off of those by now, but some people will still have some because they'll get the bamboo versions of the napkins or the paper towel. And my question to you is if it's a white napkin or paper towel, like if it's bleached versus unbleached, is that still okay to compost? I don't see any reason why not. I, I haven't, I haven't seen any warnings about that. Oh, okay. In my case, when I get takeout food, I keep forgetting to tell them don't put any napkins in it. So I've got plenty of paper napkins. I've got some cloth napkins, but I've got such a big stack of paper napkins, I think I'm going to use them up. Yeah, we inevitably, we try not to accumulate, but it happens like when you go to restaurants or takeout or whatever. (laughs) It happens. I mean, best laid plans of mice and men or whatever Bobby Burns had to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) So when it comes to the composting in the yard, there's the pile method and the trench method, and then you have the tumbler. If I have pets and kids, then I'm guessing the tumbler method would probably be the best route to be protected from that. And it certainly keep it up off the ground. You have a really small yard, you're probably not going to have, you're going to have a really small yard. You might want to break down and just build frames just to have a, a barrier between your compost and your, your kids and quadrupeds. Okay. Cause I was thinking, I'm like, man, am I going to have to get three tumblers then? Like you'd have to have your three piles. So would I need three separate tumblers to make that work? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That could get that could get expensive after a while, but I think the tumbler method is the one that works the fastest. Okay. So I guess it just, it's going to be very different for everybody, which composting method is going to be most applicable. Like if you're in an apartment versus a house in a town versus a house out in the country, if you have kids or pets, if pests are a concern. <laughs> When it comes to composting, we touched on what items were green and brown, and then you cannot put in meat and dairy, but can we expand on that list on what can and cannot go in to the compost? Yeah. Don't put any fats, oils, or grease, including salad dressings, on the compost pile. You need to have water to make it work, and those things repel water. Now, if you've got some grease on a Uh, you know, a paper napkin or something like that, it probably won't hurt anything. What about a pizza box that's greasy? A pizza box that's that's greasy? Yeah. Or if you go to McDonald's or something like that and they fries soak the paper bag with grease, you can't recycle that either. I've torn up pizza boxes and probably not small enough pieces and, and uh, put them in uh, with my compost. You just don't want a big accumulation of it altogether. Um, 
Another thing not to compost uh, would be weeds or diseased plants. You have to put them out with yard waste. I said that the heat in a hot composting method gets hot enough to kill weed seeds, but I wouldn't want to bet the ranch that it would kill them all. And you don't want to be planting weeds every time you use your compost in the garden. So here's my question about I understand the seeds because you don't want to be <laughs> planting more and more weeds, but you said, or diseased plants. So I'm a, not a gardener at all. How do I know if like the leaves that I'm picking up off the ground or the grass clipping, how do I know if those ha- are diseased or not? I think you'd have to ask a gardener. Uh, I, I have a brown thumb. I, I, I can barely grow flowers. But I think what they mean is if you've got, if you've got a plant or something that, that, that has some kind of fungal infestation or is you know, obviously a, a sick plant, you know, put it out with the yard waste or you know, bury it really deep. Now, I live in a city and I, can put, I could actually rake leaves into the street if I wanted, it to, wanted to and a special truck would come along and vacuum them up. Oh yeah, we have that here too. Yeah, in in smaller towns of the country, they they probably you know don't have that option, and sometimes sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to uh, remember that not everyone has uh, you know the same living conditions or possibilities or anything like that. But on the other hand, if you live out in the country and you've got diseased plants, then you can pile them up someplace far enough away from your compost bin that they'll, that they'll rot in peace and you won't have to do anything with it. Now, another thing not to put in your compost pile would be tree branches or shrubbery trimmings simply because they're too big to rot. Now, you can buy a chipper for that kind of a thing and you know, just kind of turn it into, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't seen one, but I suppose they, they turn it into something a little bit coarser than sawdust. Like a mulch, yeah, yeah, you know, turn it into a mulch, and, and and then you could compost stuff. But I think we'll just save it for a backyard campfire, the wood stuff. Yeah, well, that uh, that works too, and then you can compost the ash. Oh, so, see, I didn't know you could compost the ash. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah. Uh, now I've I've seen sources that say that that you shouldn't compost rhubarb, walnuts, or hickory because they contain uh, harmful chemicals. But I've also seen articles that explain how to compost them safely. So if anyone has those three things, then do a web search on composting walnuts or whatever and and, uh, uh, follow the instructions there. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the short answer to what you can compost is anything that I didn't mention is what you can't. So what about pet waste? Pet waste, uh, they, they say no. Now, I have a couple of dogs, a couple of little dogs, and I just every once in a while go through the yard and find what I don't want to step in and fling it into the shrubbery. I'm not really sure why all the experts say not to compost pet waste, but I don't have any reason to contradict them. Okay. But it's really, 
important to compost food scraps, at least in part because the way modern landfills are designed, nothing ever rots there. I have heard about excavating in a landfill and finding newspapers dated 10 or 20 years earlier, and the salad scraps look just as green as they did when they went in. Yeah, there's a book, shoot, I'll have to look it up. I don't remember the name of the book. I was told about it. I haven't read it. That's why I can't remember it. But the guy claimed to be a garbologist who went and basically dove in the landfills and dug down in the layers and was able to date each layer. And he's like, here's this cup of guacamole from 25 years ago. Here's this still fully formed head of lettuce from over 20 years ago because they just don't break down in the landfill. I don't have any idea what uh, I read because I read it so long ago. Um, I don't know if it's the same guy or not, but I'm sure there's more than one person that's wondered what happens in a landfill. Scientists have to go find out. Let's see. You can compost tea bags uh, so long as the bag is made of cotton and not polyester. You can compost coffee grounds. You can compost eggshells. That's the one exception to the rule of not composting animal products. Compost used tissue paper. When you buy clothing, you can take the paper price tags off. Cardboard inserts, if they're not big enough to recycle, you can compost them. If you have shredded paper, you can compost that. You can compost any recyclable paper product except slick magazine paper. Uh, You can compost toothpicks, single-use chopsticks, wooden skewers, wooden matches, or any other small disposable wood or bamboo product. So for everybody that made the switch over to bamboo toothbrushes, you can compost those too. That's probably one of the reasons why they made the switch over. You just have to break them up into uh, uh, small pieces to give all of the, the bacteria and worms more surface area to, uh, to, to work with because otherwise they'll stick around in your uh, pile too long. If you do any kind of woodworking, you can compost the sawdust. If you have a wood-burning fireplace, you can compost the ash. You can compost any hair you might accumulate, either yours or your pets. You can compost fingernail clippings, latex, rubber gloves, balloons, and that kind of a thing. I didn't realize that you could compost balloons and rubber gloves. I guess I thought they were plastic. If it's if it's rubber, you can compost it because it's organic. Now, if you've got a if you the gasket on your uh, blender wears out or something like that, and it it won't work in the blender anymore. If it's rubber, you can compost it. It'll take longer than rubber gloves. And if you sew, if you work with with natural fabrics, you can compost the scraps. Perfect. Yeah. Now. Nylon and polyester and other plastics, they're not any better for the worms than they are for fish, so you can't compost that stuff. Uh, Dryer lint. If you don't dry any polyester or or nylon, strictly a natural fabric person, then you can uh, compost a dryer lint. But of course, if you've got nylon or polyester, then the dryer lint's full of microplastics, so that's a no-go. 
I'm glad that you pointed that out because I have read that you can compost dryer lint and I was excited about it, although I have not been successful at composting yet, but doing an <laughs> audit of all the clothes that I currently own, although I've been owning them for many years, a lot of them are still synthetic fabrics. So I will not be able to do my dryer lint, <laughs> unfortunately, but I can do all the pet hair. <laughs> I've got plenty of that run around here. Yeah. I have a dog, two cats, and I cut my husband's hair and I cut my son's hair. So it's like, we've got lots of fur all around this place. Yeah, that, that gives you, and that, that's brown matter too. Uh, the, the hair. Oh, oh, the hair is brown matter. You need about three times as much brown matter as green matter to keep it from stinking. Oh, okay. See, that was another concern of mine is that it's right now in the winter. So it's very easy for me to accumulate food scraps but then to get the yard stuff is very challenging because it's cold and under, under snow. <laughs> but I can do all of the other stuff that you listed, like the toothpicks and yeah. I guess like cotton, Q-tips, cardboard, newspaper, all that stuff would still count as the brown layer. I'm not sure what the stick on the Q-tips is made of. Well, some some is plastic and some is a cardboard. So you have to find the one that's a cardboard stick no, the, in the middle. The cardboard would be compostable, yes. Okay. And if you use well, cotton balls for anything, you know, unless you've got, I don't suppose you've got makeup that has toxic chemicals in it or anything like that. I think most girls would use cotton balls for like nail polish removal and that's going to have acetone in it. I don't, but for other for other makeups, I think it would be fine. We'd have to double check. Double check your own makeup brand, listeners of the podcast. <laughs> double check your own makeup brand. Exactly. If you're wondering, can I compost this or can I compost that? And I haven't said anything about it. That's what Google's for. Or they can reach out to you directly. You want to share your information? My, uh, my website is Sustainability Scout. So that's sustainabilityscout.com. And my email for that is david at sustainabilityscout.com. And as I said, I'm a librarian by profession. So when people comment on, on blogs or, or email me with questions, I do my best to find the answer. I majored in looking it up and, and I love sharing information with people. And I, I try to give the, the best answers to, to people that I can. I think that's good because even though we can Google it, sometimes the information is conflicting. So I think you would be a more credible source because you could kind of help sort out the conflicting information. I could certainly give my take on it. <laughs> <laughs> and you had mentioned earlier that sustainabilityscout.com is relatively new within the past year or so. And if listeners of the podcast, Sustainer Nation, if you'd enjoyed this podcast and you've learned a lot from David, there are a couple of ways that you can help support him. Would you like to share that now? Okay. Well, one thing is that if you like to shop, shop on Amazon, you can go to uh, Sustainability Scout and click on any Amazon link and get whatever you want. Um, if you... If you have a blog or a website and you can use the, uh, you, you find the information that I present there uh, useful, I would really appreciate it if you link to it on your site. 
So if people see your articles that you post in starting sustainability and they like it and they share it to their own personal Facebook profile, would that help you? Well, uh, that would help too. But one thing, Google and the, the, the search engines look to see, well, now how many other sites are, are linking to this site? And if there, if there are lots of what we call backlinks, then Google says, well, this, uh, this gets a lot of votes. It must be important. And if there aren't any backlinks, Google figures, well, this doesn't amount to much. We'll, we're not going to show stuff from this site to anyone. So uh, backlinks are really important. Okay. All right. Well, that's the best way to help support you and get the and to spread the information from Sustainability Scout, which we know is very accurate since you're a librarian. So we appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, and thank you. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that maybe I haven't asked a question on yet? Well, I think that goes for just about anything we can think of. <laughs> well, we've covered plenty this evening, and I do appreciate your time and sharing all the information that you have with us. Thank you so much again for coming on board. I know I kind of had to <laughs> coax you into it a little bit, but I'm happy that you did it. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful for the, uh, for the invitation and the opportunity. It, it gives me a, a chance to do something that I haven't done before. Uh, uh, I'm a writer. I haven't done much speaking, so this is kind of fun. Maybe a lot of your listeners will visit my site and find that they like it. All right. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. Make sure to check out his site. It is sustainabilityscout.com. And this is David Guyon. So look for him in the group too. Sustainer Nation, when you see his articles, check him out, say hello and hit the like button for him. Thank you again, David, for coming onto the show and sharing all the information that you have about composting and hopefully it will be enough to inspire people to get started with their own backyard compost. I do want to take a moment to provide some follow-up and answer some questions from the interview. The book that we discussed, I had to look it up, it's called Rubbish, The Archaeology of Garbage, and it's by William Rathje. It's R-A-T-H-J-E, so I think that's pronounced Rathje. And he is a professor who through his extensive anthropological study of waste came to be known as a garbologist. He has already passed. He passed May 24th, 2012 of natural causes at the age of 66. But he and his students developed a methodology to examine contemporary waste using archaeological principles. He was Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of Arizona, with a joint appointment with the Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology and was consulting professor of anthropological sciences at Stanford University. And we all thank you for your eye-opening research in regards to how a landfill truly works and that nothing really breaks down. And the other question that we left open-ended was, what kind of worms do you need for vermicompost? And I reached out to Amanda, our merchandise maker, because she has one. And she says that you want red wrigglers. And you don't want to get them from a pet store because at a pet store, they'll get, they will have the older worms. And you really want younger worms. She recommends going to mimesworms.com. That's M-E-M-E-S, W-O-R-M-S. So M-E-M-E-S, mimesworms.com. 
or unclejimswormfarm.com. <laughs> and that's where you can get the young ones that'll be very beneficial for your vermicompost. I mentioned this last week and I'm going to bring it up again just in case you haven't done so. I want to remind everybody to find at least one friend to share this podcast with. Help them find it on their podcast player on their phone and subscribe them so that way they get notifications when a new episode is launched. That's only one a week, so I promise it won't be bombarding them. And the reason I ask you to do this is because it's one way that you can show support for me because the more people that subscribe and like and share, one, the more that we spread the news about sustainability and how easy it is, and two, then it's easy for other people to find it on their podcast players when they're searching for sustainable podcasts, then mine will show up. And that's what I want. I want them to find me. I want them to hear all of this wonderful, very educational information. Next week on the show, I'm going to do a recap, refresh, and update on how to transform your bathroom to low waste. I did this once before a long, long time ago, and a lot of new information has come to light, and I'm going to share it with you next week. So be sure to tune in. In the meantime, continue to save the world, and I will talk to you all again next week. Bye.